This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. With the Avalanche making a couple of trades this week, adding Ryan Johansson and then moving Alex Newhook for the equivalent of Russ Colton and the 31st overall pick. We're joined by uh, the lead writer for the Avalanche on Mile High Sports, Arif Dean. Run right. Arif is the tag. And uh, Arif, the host of the Rocky Mountain High podcast as well. Arif, thanks for joining us. Uh, the Avs certainly are making a flurry of moves that all seem to be uh, angled towards one particular goal. And that is despite the injury uh, with the Gabe Landeskog, despite the uh, bizarre situation surrounding Val Nichushkin, uh, the Avalanche believe their championship window is still open and they are making moves to keep it propped that way. I mean, absolutely. The The window is open, and, and it's it's as simple as that, but it also takes a lot of savvy moves like this to make it so, because when you have a core, and, you know, I often like to think back to the Chicago Blackhawks when they won three cups in six years. When you have a core centered around Rantanen, McKinnon, McCarr, Owen Byram, Devontae, you know, those, those other pieces, Arturi Lekkanen, you have your five or six main guys all you have to do is surround them with the right pieces, the way Chicago did with Kane, Taves, Hosa, Seabrook, and, and Keith, and the rest will work itself out. The difference between the Blackhawks and the Avalanche is the cap hasn't gone up in three years. Uh, it's gone up by a million every year instead of a three, four, five million dollar jump each season. So it takes a little bit of uh, a savvier general manager to do what the Avalanche are doing right now. Uh, basically, kicking Newhook out the door and adding a second line and a third line center and a first round draft pick that you were just referencing the 31st overall pick in today's draft. They got two first round picks at 27 and 31. Uh, if you had to make a guess, will they be drafting players in both spots tonight or not? I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say they'll only be drafting a player in one of those spots. Uh, but the way that I see it, if there's a trade out there and there's a player that they're looking for to trade either 27 or 31 for, that's great. But if they don't find a player, I think it would be smart because let's face it, the Avalanche have to restock their prospect pool too. That's something that obviously is top of mind for Chris McFarland. If the Avalanche don't have a player in mind to trade one of those picks for, I can also see them trading back, like let's say the 31st pick for you know a, a mid-second rounder and, and a couple third rounders or something. So just to kind of get a couple more lottery balls, get a couple more prospects in the system. But uh, in total, I think the 27 and 31st pick, if I had to guess, they're going to pick one of those. That's a good point because the Avs don't have picks in the second, third, or fourth round. So perhaps trading back, stockpiling a, a few more darts to throw at the board makes some sense the uh the the draft tonight for the avalanche of course you know not the same as the nba you're not expecting an instant impact unless there are deals to be made but for the avalanche sandy and i've gone through it a little bit uh presuming they lose jt confer which i think is a foregone conclusion at this point what are the avs biggest needs and do you believe they'll even hit free agency as a buyer of any significance at all i think they will honestly i mean Look, right now, if we're going to talk about their top priority, not necessarily needs, their top priority is a contract for Bowen Byram. And, and uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm Chris McFarlane and, and Joe Sackick, I'm trying to get him locked up for as many years as possible. If it's a bridge deal, make it a three- or four-year deal instead right. of a two. In terms of needs, um, look, right now, the Avalanche, if you think about it, you know, they have their top line set up. It's Lekkanen, McKinnon, and Rantanen. 
Their second line is now projected to be Val Nichushkin on the wing, and you have Ryan Johansson at center, but you're missing a left winger to replace Landeskog. On the third line, you got Ross Colton. On the fourth line, you got Logan O'Connor. Nobody else is under contract. So, you know, there's a possibility Ben Myers, who's an RFA, will sign a deal and be your fourth line center. Maybe they choose to bring back Dennis Malgin, another RFA. But right now, nobody else is under contract. So I think when you're looking at the abs and their needs at forward, they need to continue to rebuild that third line. You got Ross Colton at center. Who's playing with him? And that's assuming Logan O'Connor is going to stay on the fourth line. More importantly, who's going to replace Gabriel Landeskog on that second line left wing spot? Because 24 hours ago, I would have told you maybe they give Newhook a shot at the wing to be a top six forward. Well, now Newhook's gone. So they got to go out and get someone. If there's a trade out there, maybe they can go out and make a trade. My personal fantasy, you know, trade option would be someone like Victor Arvidsson from the LA Kings. They need to clear cap space and Arvidsson's got chemistry with Johansson. Uh, but if that's not the case, there are a couple of options on the free agent market. Someone like Michael Bunting, who has had back-to-back 20-plus goal seasons playing with Austin Matthews, could be an option. And, you know, obviously, other than him, there's Barbashev, who's the bigger bigger guy out there, and then obviously some trade options that they can look at. Sean noted, I think correctly, that losing JT Confer now is a foregone conclusion. What about Evan yeah. Rodriguez? Is that a foregone conclusion, too, or is that less clear? Uh, could they bring him back, and could he be that second line forward? They could bring him back, and I think that one is a little bit less clear. There hasn't been any kind of confirmation either way. JT, it looks like today there's been a lot of uh, murmurs out there that it's, it's all but confirmed that he's going to be walking. Rodriguez, if he comes back, I think is an ideal option, and obviously it depends on what else you can pull off if you're the Avs. But he's an ideal option to me as the third-line left winger. That's what he was supposed to be last year with Landeskog healthy. Uh, he has to step into a bigger role. And uh, I think if you can bring him back to play with Ross Colton, I've seen how Colton plays in the playoffs. We saw how Evan Rodriguez played against Seattle yesterday, one of, I guess, the, the good shining lights in a, in a disappointing series for the Avs. And to have those two guys together on the third line, uh, is the exact type of line you need on that on you know the exact type of pair you need on the third line. So I think if you can find a way to get Evan back to be more of a middle six forward than a clear cut top six forward, it would it would only be better for you. Um, but that also means maybe they don't go out and sign somebody like Bunting and Barbashev. Maybe they bring in another project like Jesse Puliarvi or maybe. Jonathan Druin, or maybe even Max Pacioretty coming off an injury, and that way you have Rodriguez and this other player to kind of be interchangeable second, third line. Had a text over on the text line, uh, 303-831-1340. Danny Bailey is going to pop in with a question from that text line uh, about Ross Colton. Yeah, Eric, uh, a loyal listener here to Sandy and Sean. Joe, he wants to know, is there a player currently on the Avs that Colton is comparable to? The uh, best comparable is because he's still on the abs for about two or three days is JT Comfort, honestly. Uh, he also kills penalties. He plays a versatile center role where you can uh, slot him in the top six in a pinch when needed. As we saw with JT, you don't really want to have it long term. Uh, he plays on the second power play unit. He can win you faceoffs. He actually has a better faceoff percentage than JT. Uh, he'll give you around that 16 to 20 goal mark, which is you know right around where JT's been the last three, four, five years. Um, and, and he plays a physical, rugged style in the playoffs. I mean, JT's not a big body. Comfort's not a big body, but he's still 
brings it in the postseason and, and was a crucial piece in the Avalanche's cup-winning team, very similar to what Ross Colton was for Tampa to even get back to the final in 2023, in 2022, and he also scored the cup-winning goal in 2021. So uh, I would say what the Avalanche did today, and I saw, you know, Sean, I saw what you wrote uh, in our uh, reaction piece today about the deal that you still feel like there's a competition between Johansson and, and Colton for the second line. I think that, you know, Chris McFarland made it clear saying that Johansson, when he acquired him, he said in the release, this is going to shore up our top six. And when he acquired Colton, he said, this is a versatile forward. So it says to me, Johansson is slotting in at two C um, and, and Ross Colton is going to be your new JT comfort one year younger under team control and probably for a little bit cheaper than what JT is going to get on the market. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, obviously, and and, uh, and you're right there. I think there isn't, you know, an opportunity, I think, if, if Johansson doesn't look sharp coming off the injury. But your point is is very clear. McFarland made that clear. So you know, there you're, you're sat down the middle, first, second, and third line. We talked about the wing options. Uh, we've talked a little bit about defense. I guess I want to go there uh, as well because Sandy and I talked about it before. Uh, the top five are set, presuming Bowen Byram gets his new deal, which he will. Where do you look at for the sixth? Is that someone that, that it is coming from outside the team? Do you think someone like Jack Johnson has a chance to return? What do you think the Avs are looking at knowing that they're moving away from Eric Johnson? That is a great question. I just want to throw this out there before we move on since I was just talking about him. The Vegas Golden Knights just re-signed Ivan Barbashev to a five-year deal, so he's yeah. off the market. Um, yeah, so he's staying in Vegas, which is a big move for them. But with the decor, I am so... So I've been talking about this on the podcast for about a week and a half now. I am so curious and intrigued by what Chris McFarland does with the defense because you just said it. They have their top five locked up. But what if he pulls a swerve? What if he wants to spend more money on a second-line left winger? And what if that means flipping Sam Gerrard for a cheaper option and then adding some depth pieces? So, you know, Brett Pesci is out there. He makes four and a quarter million, I want to say. He's going to be on the market, uh, on the trade market, I should say, from Carolina. So I'm really curious what happens there. But if you're sticking with that top five, I think Jack Johnson is a wonderful candidate to bring back as the number seven D. Uh, I don't think it would be a good idea to keep him as a top six guy because he's good when you have somebody to be interchangeable with. And uh, I don't think Curtis McDermott is somebody that you want to be in that rotation. You want him a little bit further down the depth chart. So... When I look at the free agent market, I look at somebody like Oliver Ekman Larson, who just got bought out by the Vancouver Canucks. He could be a project for a chief salary, given that he's still getting paid, to kind of rejuvenate his career on the third pair. Uh, I also look at somebody like Luke Shen, who uh, just finished a season with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Not the fastest guy, but when you uh, put him with somebody like Sam Gerrard, he'll play that stay-at-home role, and he'll play it well. And he's played for some good teams in the past few years. He even won a Stanley Cup with Tampa. So... Those kinds of depth options are the ones that stick out to me, but I'm still curious about potential trades. Andrew Peake is someone that another member of the Denver media, uh, Evan Rowell, has been kind of uh, talking about a lot. He's a defenseman in Columbus that makes $2.75 million. Not only good for your third pair, but you could even arguably see him challenge Josh Manson for that second pair with, uh, with Bowen Byram. So that's an option. So. I'm just really curious to see. Maybe they flip out Sam Gerrard for a cheaper option like Peak, and then decide to shore up both their defensive depth and their forward depth with that extra money that they save from the Gerrard deal. We remember back 14 years to the kind of draft they had uh, in, in 2009 with Matt Duchesne and Ryan O'Reilly and Tyson Berry, who might have been actually the, the, the steal of that 
uh, Drive played a few more games here in Denver than uh, O'Reilly did. Uh, but uh, the point about the farm system, I'd, I want to underscore that because it really is uh, It not only do they have a farm system that seems almost barren, uh, but they lost their best minor league coach recently, too. They will be facing him next year when they play Anaheim. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm really happy for Greg Cronin. It's, it's a tough uh, it's a tough loss for the Avalanche organization. It is. But, but the, the big takeaway that I have from Greg Cronin getting an NHL coaching job is finally the Avalanche are doing something right with their AHL roster because it's been, it's been well over a decade since we've seen something like that. You know, their, their AHL team hasn't been before the Colorado Eagles and maybe the last year or two of the Lake Erie or uh, sorry, the San Antonio rampage before, before that Lake Erie, before this like recent stretch with the Colorado Eagles, their minor league team hasn't really been competitive in the, in the post lockout era. And I'm talking the 04 lockout, not the 13 lockout. So the fact that they had a coach that was good enough to get an NHL job is says good things about the organization. It's, Stability at the coaching staff with Jared Bednar to be able to kind of eye down the type of guy he wants, get him hired, and let him help develop players. I mean, Jared, you know, if he wins another Stanley Cup, will already have more Stanley Cups than any other coach in Avalanche history. They, they've never had that type of stability, and I think with Jared kind of running the coaching staff for both organizations and the Eagles right up the road, it gives the Avalanche a little more stability to know that right now you just know that Jared Bednar, Chris McFarland, uh, Joe Sackick uh, and the rest of the staff out, out there are already eyeing down some some prospects to replace Greg Cronin. And they may not be done, of course, with the Avalanche this offseason, including tonight when the NHL draft kicks off. You want to give Arif a follow, run right, Arif. That's A-A-R-I-F, Arif Dean, the host of the Hockey Mountain High podcast and uh, the proverbial tip of the spear for everything we're doing with the Avs here at Mile High Sports. Uh, appreciate the the drop-in, Arif. Really, uh, this is a... Uh, and have already been a pretty monumental offseason, and technically we're not even there yet. The new league doesn't even start till the weekend, so thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens here the next week or so. All right, thanks so Hello. much, uh, Arif Dean, uh, joining us. And uh, it, it is sort of, again, notable, and I guess there is a bit of an overlap, Sandy. I, I can't help but notice it, that the way that these uh, the roommates of the uh, Avalanche, the Denver Nuggets are the champs, the Avs were the champs the year before, what you're seeing is the fact that they are run by the same ownership group, but they are run in different fashions, but they're doing the same thing. They seem to have an, an, an adept ability to look at the cap situation, look at the lay of the land, whether it's Joe Sackett or Chris McFarland, whether it, it's, it's Calvin Booth, to look at the lay of the land and the understanding of the CBA, the salary cap, what's to come in the next few years, and make sure that they're ahead of it as opposed to playing catch-up. Both teams have done very well at it. It's probably a big part of the reason that both teams have won titles in the last two years. In an ideal world, you'd like to have, at the very least, your top two players making your top two salaries. I don't think there's much doubt that the Avalanche and Nuggets qualify in that category. They're paying their best players what they should be making, at least the top two. And if you extend it down a little bit further, you, you realize 
how secure both teams are for at least the next couple of years, that they don't have to worry about heading off any real crisis, any danger of being forced to move on from any of their premier players. And I think we have to consider with the avalanche that you have four top 20 players, as mentioned earlier. Taves is the only one they have to worry about in the not too distant future. The other three guys, they're set. The, The point you make is really important. I think when you're looking at the way these teams are constructed in the salary cap, and I think you, you, you see it in every sport. Uh, they're not baseball. Obviously, there's no cap, but you, but you see the same issue. When the dollar amounts are not distributed in a meritocratic way where the best players get paid the most and there's a pecking order based on performance, that helps a couple things to have it. Number one, it keeps the, the weird little spats out because somebody's making way more money, but they're not doing as much as somebody who's making less money. But it also builds a culture in which it makes it clear if you perform, you will be paid. And so it incentivizes that performance by making it clear that from the top to the bottom, when the people are paid what they're supposed to be paid, that you you build the correct things going forward for your team. It is an internal cultural part, and it avoids the little spats. And so sometimes, even when you might have a player that's pretty good that's got a salary that's out of whack. It seems as if both the Avs and the Nuggets have made sure that they're either moving on from those as quickly as possible or finding some sort of remedy when it comes to offering new contracts. And I think in a salary cap world, especially even though they are vastly different in a hard-capped NHL and a very soft-capped NBA, although, boy, when you hit those aprons now, it's a significant penalty. That's a really underrated part of it because we see it happen in the NFL all the time, right? There's somebody who's got some crazy deal that they, have, that they you know, they got some $16 million a year deal because they had 10 sacks three years ago and, and other guys who've played well aren't making very much and this guy's making big money. And what happens? People grouse. They, come, they complain. They grump. They get frustrated behind the scenes. The Avs and the Nuggets don't have to worry about that part. And you can trust the front office a little bit more because they've proven that when you perform, you get paid. You can look down the list of salaries on both of those teams and say, with you can quibble with Michael Porter Jr., I suppose, but it's a quibble at this point. You can say, these are the people from top to bottom. These are our most talented, most, most uh, credentialed players, and that's why they make what they make. That's the secret of doing business. Now, in the NFL, for many, many years, it seemed as if the Patriots had the best sense of the cap, and they also had a quarterback who was paid well, right. but would make concessions in order that they could maintain a talent base. Eventually, they had to pay the price for that. And Bill Belichick, a couple of years ago, very much out of character, acknowledged that publicly, that we are paying now for, I can't remember exactly how many Super Bowls he said, but it was more than one. 
yeah. that they wouldn't have made without the moves that were executed at the time. And they knew, especially once Brady left, that there would be a downturn. I don't know that they anticipated that it would be as steep a downturn as it's been. But the advantage here is not only a competitive one, but it's increasingly when you see good players traded seemingly for very little. And the Ross Colton deal is a perfect example of this. It's not because Tampa Bay mismanaged the cap. It's that for a third line forward center, they couldn't afford to pay him even as a restricted free agent because they would have to sacrifice someone in keeping him who they perceive to be even more valuable. And it just, the the idea that there is a cap, uh, certainly in the NHL is a hard cap. You really have to be careful in not overpaying, even slightly. And the flip side of what I was talking about earlier with Grubauer, somebody listening might turn around and say, well, if it was only a difference of five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 a year, why couldn't the Avs have stepped up and offered a little more? That is uh, the path to destitution. Yep. If you start overpaying and it's, it's a, guys. It's a hard thing to do. Even it feels if it a little seems time. small, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars a year. What if you give that to Grubauer? Then Cadre comes along, and the difference is five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. Well, we're gonna get, we're gonna keep him. Eventually, you're gonna lose a Devontae over that. It may be tough to keep him anyway, mm-hmm. but if they had overpaid for Cadre, you're right. And or overpaid for Grubauer. It's an extra million and a half, two million. That's 20, 30% more likely that they'll lose tapes. That's the long-term game that the Avs and the Nuggets have both been playing, and that's why they have, well, very recent championships. That's how you manufacture a team that can function in those salary cap leagues. The Colorado Rockies were blanked last night by the visiting Dodgers. No surprise there, but a bit of a surprise in the fact that a certain member of the, the Rockies is getting no blame or no fault whatsoever for the performance. We'll talk about that next on Mile High Sports. Yeah, mama, this surely is a dream. Yeah, yeah mama, this must be my Sandy Cuff and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. For the Colorado Rockies, a opportunity, let's call it, at a historic season seems to be in the offing as this team hits the uh, the halfway mark of the season. They lose last night 5-0. to zero. Uh, behind Clayton Kershaw and, and the Dodgers, and that leaves them at the 81 game mark. Sandy, yes, at 31 and 50, double the numbers. The Rockies are on pace for their I, first. I just 100 don't understand season. why you're 
being so negative about a team that's lost 26 of its last 39, <laughs> 16 of its last 21, 10 of its last 12, and is 7 and 17 this month. I just don't understand the negativity, but we will proceed uh, nonetheless by noting that in only two seasons across their largely miserable competitive history, have the Rockies at the halfway mark been in worse shape than they're in this year? In each of those two years, 1993, first-year expansion team Mm -hmm. managed by Don Baylor, they improved dramatically in the second half of the season. Same was true under Clint Hurdle in 2005 when they had won fewer than 30 games at midseason but finished with 67 wins. Again, not a winning team in the second half of the year but a much-improved team in the second half of the year. The distinction I would make in 2023 is that there are few, if any, signs that the Rockies can maintain in the second half of the season a 31-50 and pace. They may be, in fact, worse. Little chance, at least in looking at it from here, that they will be improved even slightly in the second half of the year over the first. And that would leave them, if that is true, with the first 100-loss season in the history of the franchise. With the exception of Kyle Freeland, who I think is doing yeoman's work with a 4.54 ERA, which is not disastrous at Coors Field. He hasn't been great, only 53 strikeouts in 85 innings. This is more or less, with a couple exceptions, a pitching staff of has-beens and never-will-bees. The idea of top-tier prospects, there's not really any in the bunch. When you're talking about on the offensive side of the ball, obviously Ezekiel Tovar is one of the the big hopes for the Rockies, and his hitting has come around. The defense is certainly ready. But you look at a a guy like Elias Diaz and think, wow, he's been Well, he's 32. (laughs) He's not not a young guy. He's not 22. No. And for a catcher, 32 ain't 22. Right. And you go past Tovar. Uh, Brenton Doyle, I guess, has been uh, uh, shown flashes, but he's he's hitting 216. Uh, Alaris Montero's hitting 202. Nolan Jones, I think, shows uh, real promise. Uh, one of the good moves there. But your, your, your top guys aren't there yet either when you're talking about the Drew Romos and the Zach Beans of the world. So I get that this team is not good. It's not well-constructed. At the same time, it is the manager's job to get the best out of his players. I'm not convinced that's happening. And while I don't blame Bud Black for this bad roster he's been handed, he's been handed a similar roster over the last few years, and I really haven't seen, quite frankly, any difference between, say, Bud Black managing this team and you managing this team in the fact that they kind of finished the year the same way they started the year. Should Nobody I take gets sense at that. Well, no, because you're a major league manager, apparently. But the the you, I, you've, you've elevated me. <laughs> I, but I, I mean, it, it is kind but, of funny because in town that the idea is like, well, don't blame poor Bud I, Black. I, I, Are you I sure? Understand. I understand. And there, there was, as there is every week in the Denver Post, I believe it runs on Tuesdays. It might be a different day, depending on the week, but. Uh, this week, it was Patrick Saunders, the estimable um, beat writer 
who's covered the Rockies oh, for years, yeah. and columnist Sean Keeler. And it was interesting that the columnists took a more forgiving posture with respect to Bud Black than the beat guy did. Now, you know, they, they, there was some talk of uh, players having been brought here and paid an enormous amount of money. Hi there, Chris Bryant. Oh. And that certainly isn't Bud Black's fault, but the managerial equivalent of Chris Bryant is Bud Black. I, there is no sense with all the rules changes that the Rockies in the dugout and upstairs have been prepared at any point for a new brand of baseball that we're seeing all over baseball. We're seeing it from the first place Cincinnati Reds in the National League Central, the first place Arizona Diamondbacks in the National League West. Both teams were picked by many to finish last, not first, in their respective divisions. Arizona is two and a half games ahead of the Giants and three ahead of the Dodgers right now. Uh, the Giants and Dodgers are two and three in the wild card race. Mm -hmm. So it's a strong division, except for San Diego having underachieved and the Rockies. It, I, I mean, it, it's even to call it underachievement. It, I, I don't know what to call it. It's not really underachievement, but it, it, it's just, it's somewhere between AAA and Major League Baseball. Yeah, uh, and that and that might be uh, being favorable. And the other team I'll throw in there that wasn't necessarily supposed to be uh, the best, one of the best five teams in baseball, and the lead wild card team in the American League only because Tampa is fifty four and twenty eight in the American League East. That's the Baltimore Orioles. These are teams that four or five years ago certainly were old and slow, and going nowhere. And organizationally, not necessarily anticipating that these rule changes would come precisely as they did in 2023, but knowing they were boring. People weren't coming to watch their games. Right. Point. Good point. Don't be boring then. Bring in, start drafting people who are perhaps more athletic than they are polished as prospects. But how many prospects? people you draft are ready to go right away as polished major leaguers. We talked about hockey and base and basketball, baseball. It's even more extreme, right. It takes years to develop these people. A lot of them get hurt along the way and never develop into very much. One Rocky prospect in particular, former first round draft choice is now healing from uh, a broken wrist, which has uh, rendered his production virtually non-existent up until now. Of course, now he's hurt and he's out of the year. But I look at these teams, and there was an excellent piece on uh, these three teams in particular that I mentioned, Cincinnati, Arizona, and Baltimore, by Jason Stark of The Athletic that ran last week. Mm -hmm. And he delved into why these three teams are so good, and all three teams spent not only recent years, but spring training this year, in anticipation of the new rules, trying not only offensively, but defensively, too, to maximize an advantage. They weren't just working in spring training 
on maximizing offensive advantages, how to take the extra base, how to score from second on virtually every single, how to go from first to third on every base hit, or as many as they could manage. All those teams within the last four or five years have been poor at doing those aren't these things. These, aren't these old school thought processes, though? These but are the they're, kind wor- of- they're working on these things intentionally in spring training, and I'm thinking... I don't think the Rockies worked on any of these but things offensively played. or defensively. In spring training, the Rockies are playing the same brand of baseball. I know they don't have any players. I get that. But they're they, they, they're playing as if it's 2017 or 2018. The game is different. It's a faster game. The games go more quickly. Decision-making has to be made more rapidly. And the Rockies are stuck playing a brand of baseball that's at least five years, probably more, out of date. You want to know why the St. Louis Cardinals are bad? They're a hell of a lot more talented than the Rockies, Uh, and they have a better record than the Rockies do, because they haven't adjusted either. They're old and slow. Paul Goldschmidt can't run from here to the door. Although Goldschmidt's one of their better players. And he's one of their better players. Nolan Arenado has no speed. None. So they're stuck playing a brand of baseball that the Pittsburgh Pirates don't play, the Chicago Cubs don't play, and the Pirates and the Cubs aren't nearly as talented. Orioles the Milwaukee aren't as talented. Brewers, Cincinnati Reds. Orioles are playing a brand of baseball that the New York Yankees don't play. That's where they're five and a half games ahead of the Yankees in the American League East. And a surefire wildcard team where the Yankees are just hanging on. It's, it's incredible that people don't see these things and have, have no sense that baseball is being played differently now. The Rockies are an awful team to watch, not just because they don't win, but because they're boring. They're far and away last in Major League Baseball and stolen bases. Yeah, They oh, have yes. some young players who can run. They never run. The funny part is Bud Black played during an era in which speed and defense and, and taking the extra base and all those smart extra moves actually won you ball games. Uh, but, yeah, but he pitched primarily, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in a DH league that was correct, relatively speaking, older and slower than the senior circuit, the National League. He's used to the old way of doing it new younger managers and you know bud black is my age the new younger managers are adjusting they're letting people go they're letting people run. it doesn't it's not a guarantee of success cincinnati may not win but when you're but when you're short of talent but you maximize your opportunities by doing things differently and cincinnati has this young player uh dela cruz who's beating out ground balls, hit the first that are fielded cleanly, hit hard, fielded cleanly, and he's beating the first baseman of the bag. And he's six And five. then he comes back the next game and hits one 440 feet as hard as you can hit a baseball. Imagine having a player like that. Now, uh, you know, the, the Rockies we know can't draft and can't develop talent, so they don't have any prospect, any anything close to what, some of these other organizations have an abundance, 
But these people are given free reign, and they're fun to watch. This is why, for, for the first time in many, many years, I am an advocate of the Rockies trading all their older, slower yep. players, as many as they can, <laughs> and just playing with the young guys. I was having lunch with a season ticket holder today for the Rockies. And he's saying, how much worse could it be? Give Tovar the green light. Let him go. Who cares if he gets thrown out a higher percentage of the time than you'd like? That would equate with quote-unquote percentage. How's he going to learn to get a better jump? I mean, this but is they the don't challenge. E- they don't even practice that. They didn't even do that in spring training. This is what happens when you are a, a, an organization that has no expectations. When there are no expectations, despite the fact ownership will tell you that you know they hope to make the playoffs every five years, but when there actually are no expectations, there's no way to let anybody down upstairs. And so that's the challenge for the Rockies. Things have changed at Broncos training camp under Sean Payton, the new ownership. We'll talk about it. Uh, are they good, bad? Just more complicated. Next on Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Broncos, we talked about the uh, first practices that fans could attend. Of course, now uh, the NFL has gone ahead and released all of the uh, dates for reporting and all of that sort of stuff and uh, the Broncos part of it. So now we know more about the uh, the, the training camp process. But, it, but to my mind, it's interesting, Sandy, when you're talking about the way this team is going to change, and the way it's going to change this process, because the Broncos now, uh, with the 12 open practices that they have, start on July 28th, they had to be claimed through Ticketmaster, and they had to be claimed when things opened at 10 a.m. today. Now, each guest can claim four tickets, but only 3,000 fans per practice. Now, assuming if tickets are free, um, why would you not take four of them, Right. If you got in and got to take the sum. So really you're talking about 750 fans got to get tickets for a practice. I get it. They're free. At the same time, uh, over at Westward, they did a good piece talking about what happened last year at one point when they had 7,000 at a practice last year and how much of a difficulty it was because a lot of people don't realize, they don't necessarily follow the Broncos on social channels or things like that, that don't realize, if, yeah, wait, you have to have tickets? Generally, you just show up early, stand in line, right. go sit on the hill, yeah. and call it good. Uh, no, now you have to have tickets. And if, by the way, and if you don't have them now, don't bother. They were gone by 10, 10 a.m. today. So you're not going, if you don't have those tickets in your hand right now, or I shouldn't even say hand because it's not paper tickets. If you don't have one in your yeah. Ticketmaster app on your phone, <laughs> you're not going to Broncos training camp this year. Well, no, and, and, and there won't be 3,000 people there, I don't think, for any of those dozen practice sessions, but there will be 750 people in control. Of 3,000. There'll be some days they don't want to go, uh, but there'll be a control of 3,000. See, tickets. that's the interesting part because I get it. Uh, Look, the NFL is expensive. There's a lot of time maybe you want to try to take the kids to see 
uh, they're they're football heroes, and this is as good as you can get. Uh, you're going to go to the practice. It's not uh, you don't even have to, you know buy a preseason ticket, which is the worst bargain in all of sports. Uh, <laughs> the would, biggest rip just, off. Yeah, in just all don't of sports. don't do that. That'd be. I normally don't tell people what to do with their money. I'll tell you with this: don't buy NFL preseason tickets. Don't do that. Don't 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 do that to your family. It's not worth even it. the commissioner of the NFL says preseason games are garbage. They, in fact, are exhibition games, and the starters increasingly aren't playing at all. Play at all. Increasingly aren't playing at all. And Nathaniel Hackett got a lot of criticism for that particular decision. Yeah, but he's a year ago. uh, He was but there were a dozen things, a dozen things that were more seriously wrong with the Broncos, uh, opposed to. Nathaniel Hackett's decision not to play starters. A bunch of teams do that. In fact, a bunch of better teams than Denver, said, as a matter of fact. Well, sure, but he he said he was following their lead in trying to make the Broncos better. Now, what killed the Broncos, in my opinion, in the preseason was not that starters didn't play in the games. It was that the practices were so leisurely even Hackett called them jog-throughs. I mean, that's faster than a walk right? right? I think that's why I used that term. But it didn't make any difference. Walk-through, jog-through, they weren't in shape. When you're not in shape, you get injuries. When you're not in shape, you die at the end of games. The Broncos are 4-9 and nine in one-score games last year. I was surprised they were that good. Because they were the worst conditioned team in the NFL. Playing at altitude. Where you need where you to look be to take advantage of it. And should be in any year one of the five best, if not the best, conditioned team in the NFL. Rookies I think that will change this year. Yes. Rookies will report on July nineteenth, veterans on the twenty fifth, as we talked about that first practice that you can see will be the twenty eighth. But I, I think, you know, you brought up a, a good point there, Sandy, because if you really wanted to go see, like, let's just say you wanted to see, you wanted to see Justin Simmons. You wanted to see Pat Sertan. You wanted to see Jerry Judy or Russell Wilson. If you go to a preseason game, you might not see any of them. I, we don't know what Sean Payton will do yet, but more on more and more teams are realizing the, the risk of subjecting a important player to injury sure. in a meaningless game right. is Far that the, the the risks far outweigh the rewards, and I think if, um, all the more reason why you know if college football can go without preseason, I don't understand why the the NFL can't either. But nevertheless, uh, they'll sell seventy thousand tickets to the preseason games. They'll give away three thousand tickets to practices to seven hundred and fifty people per practice. And you're right. If if you were trying to bring the family, or you wanted, or whatever, just you, you wanted to see. Uh, Justin Simmons or Patrick Stan, you wanted to go to a practice where you'd at least be able to see him. Well, I, you know, I hope you knew about this, by the way. I hope you knew about that this was forthcoming because it wasn't all that long out there. And I, I hope you had your app ready and I hope you were able to get in line and I hope you're able to get one of those uh, coveted slots. And and I do wonder if this is good. This is part of the future here because the understanding there are teams, you know, Dallas is at the vanguard of that and that they have built a, a practice facility with a hotel literally attached to it that's getting this getting constructed that's right next to the practice field. Teams are trying to make their 
headquarters and where they practice now a destination. And I, I think, and it's longer term, the NFL won't get rid of them until they stop making the money. The NFL, I think, understands the preseason games one way or the other are on their way out, but they're going to have to sacrifice the rest of them to get an 18-game schedule, whatever it is. They're, they're going to be more or less gone, or you'll have one. And teams are going to start finding a way to maximize their revenue in other ways, and that's eventually going to be selling access to practice. Oh, no question. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the fact that you're that's already, coming you know, within the next decade. You're going to have to have a, you know, you have to have a Ticketmaster account to, uh, to get free tickets. Not much of a change for Ticketmaster to have to throw a couple bucks on there for you. You know, so whatever it's two fifties, five bucks, whatever, but, but that's where it's going. And it, it, everyone wonders where and when the NFL will eventually strangle the golden goose. I don't think this is it, but they do seem to be intent on trying to find different ways to find out. Well, the NHL is diving after every penny. We've, we've known uh, the, NHL, the NFL, NHL maybe too, but not to the extent that the NFL, the NFL is the king. And yeah, yeah, the, as they say, maximize the avalanche revenue. practice at family sports center, which you could be, Skating at the rink next to them, yeah, <laughs> or just walking around yeah, well, playing video games and checking on the app. About, about the Broncos, does their preseason practice facility? I mean, it looks impressive to, to those of us sure. who've been out there, sure. Right? But compared to the other thirty-one teams, I mean, you're talking about hotels being built mm-hmm. as part of practice facilities in places like Dallas and. Uh, there are others. It's very, very much in line with the way Jerry Jones thinks. But there are others who are moving in that direction. I wonder if it, it does come to a point where, where the Broncos facility, at least for preseason, is is not considered top tier, mid tier. I I think but lower that's tier. more of a, a, the interesting story, too, because we're talking about, look, the Raiders, you know, opened a, uh, a practice facility. In Nevada, when they moved, the, the facility itself was $75 million to make. Um, and that's just their practice facility. So more and more you're seeing that. And, yeah, it's it intrigues me because I do think that as the Broncos, the thought is all about a new stadium. There may not be a new stadium. Uh, they're, they're spending a lot of money in, in fixing up in Power Field, in adding a new video board. You can see it as you drive by. Uh, look, if you can keep Soldier Field and Lambeau Field running for as long, if you want to throw money at it, you can keep in Power Field just fine where it is. Where they might want to build something new is a new team facility. Maximize it there. Now that up by the airport maybe makes a little sense, doesn't well, it? Maybe. Um, one quick word of consolation to those who won't have access to Bronco preseason practices. Uh, this uh, statement was made by uh, a very knowledgeable football person who happens to be Mike Shanahan's wife. She's a great lady, Peggy Shanahan. This was when the 49ers and her son, Kyle, were in for a joint practice session with the Broncos a few years back. You've seen one preseason practice. You've seen them all. <laughs> How many preseason? I will leave you with that yeah, bit of consolation. You and I have been to a lot of them, and um, I would say that's generally the truth. Yes. <laughs> so don't worry about it. You're not missing much. But, yes, uh, we are cleaning closer to football as well. The NHL draft is tonight. The Avs scheduled to pick 27th. And 31st, we don't know if they'll do that. I expect another trade. We'll find out, but we know we'll talk about it tomorrow, and we'll have uh, Kyle Fredrickson of the Denver Gazette join us to break it all down as well. That'll be it for us. Thanks to Danny Bailey in the booth for making everything work. Thanks to you, whether you're listening on air, 
uh, on the website at MileHighSports.com or on the free Miley Sports app. The easiest and best way to grab everything Mile High Sports. We appreciate it. Eric Dean joined us. Make sure you check it out if you missed any part of the program. We'll be back tomorrow for Sandy Clough. I'm Sean Drotar. Keep it right here on Mile High Sports. I'm falling asleep and she's calling.